If you will turn in your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 7, we're going to read a fairly large portion of Scripture, verses 4 through 17. Revelation chapter 7, verses 4 through 17, hear now the word of God. And I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel were sealed. Of the tribe of Judah, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Reuben, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Gad, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Asher, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Naphtali, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Manasseh, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Simeon, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Levi, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Issachar, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Zebulun, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Joseph, 12,000 were sealed. Of the tribe of Benjamin, 12,000 were sealed. After these things, I looked. And behold, a great multitude, which no one could number, of all the nations, tribes, peoples, and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed with white robes, with palm branches in their hands, and crying out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation belongs to our God, who sits on the throne, and to the Lamb. All the angels stood around the throne, and the elders, and the four living creatures, and fell on their faces before the throne, and worshipped God, saying, Amen. Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might be to our God forever and ever. Amen. Then one of the elders answered, saying to me, Who are these arrayed in white robes, and where did they come from? And I said to him, Sir, you know. So he said to me, These are the ones who come out of the great tribulation and washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will dwell among them. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Thus far the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that as we look at what appears at first glance to be almost a confusing chapter, that you would yield in us the great comfort and peace and intimacy conveyed in these words. We pray that these would mean as much to us as they meant to those seven churches who originally received this letter. So we do pray that you would grant us wisdom to understand your word what it tells us of you and its call in our lives. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I think one of the great conundrums plaguing the human psyche in our contemplations of an all-good, almighty God is human suffering, especially when it comes en masse whether it's the tens of millions under the brutal totalitarianism of a Mao or a Stalin or a a Hitler, or the seemingless, thoughtless, ruthless acts of nature, like floods, earthquakes, hurricanes, which seem to indiscriminately 
take the lives of young and old and male and female. We scratch our heads at the thought of these types of devastations. Death is never easy. But to come to the realization at the end of one's life that we barely ever ascended to the rank of a statistic is conspicuously heartbreaking. To come to the end of your life and then ask yourself, as you know, the flood is taking you down or as the warriors come in and just slaughter, to ask yourself, what impact have I ever had? At what level in this world have I ever even mattered? Do I even matter? To, to die with such insignificance means that we had to have lived with insignificance. That we just are insignificant. It's, a, it's little wonder, at least to me, with the reality of this, that so many of the world's, you know, the world's greatest thinkers, writers, poets, statesmen, artists, and so forth, have ended their lives in a state of self-destructive nihilism, where you just kind of draw the conclusion that it just doesn't matter. Nothing seems to matter. Well, you might be asking me at this point, why this introduction in this chapter? Pastor Paul, why, why so gloomy? Why, why so morose to open up with the contemplation of such a, a meaninglessness in our deaths? But the answer to that is because this is the context of the chapter. These seven churches to whom the revelation was written are being made aware of an apocalypse. Something is about to happen. There's going to be an explosive and judgmental conclusion to the old covenant. And they are being made aware of how dire this is going to be. The four horsemen of the apocalypse, conquering and death and, and, and scarcity of economics and famine and pestilence and plague. These are all on their horizon. They are, they're, they're coming and they're coming soon to them. These seals of judgment that we've spoken of that are being opened by Christ, it would seem as if the world was being decreated. That the term is used, decreation. And they're about to view this. They're about to see this. This is the, the context of chapter 7. Friends, we need to be careful in all the sensationalism surrounding the revelation that we not lose the immediate loving caring and ministerial message 
what it must have been like for these seven churches to receive this letter. You know, that rhetorical question at the end of the previous chapter, who was able to stand? That's hovering in chapter 7. It's in the end of chapter 6, when we see all of these cataclysms take place, this anticipation, and the question is, who is able to stand? That's kind of hanging out there. In chapter 7, we are introduced to these four angels holding back, as it were, the winds of judgment. We talked about that last week. And then a fifth angel shows up, almost, you know, it says out of the east, almost as if a sunrise. And that fifth angel comes, we're told, with a loud voice, almost to, to silence the, the raucousness of the event. He tells the other angels to do no harm until something very personal takes place. The servants of God, those who belong to Christ, are to be sealed. Now, we discussed last time what it means to be sealed, to receive the seal of, of God, the seal of Christ. It speaks of ownership, of protection, of belonging of identity, this idea of being sealed is, is very intimate. We, in our normal culture, might think of a wedding ring. You know, you look at a wedding ring and you realize that that person belongs to somebody in, in a healthy way, in a good way. They, there's, a, there's a relationship there. Or we might even, as we saw this morning, uh, the seals of the sacraments that God has put his seals upon us, and he's like, you belong to me, you're mine. Or maybe even a deeper sense, the seal, as we read in Ephesians 1, the seal of the Holy Spirit, that God has sealed us. This kind of, they call it like a down payment, where the Holy Spirit has opened our eyes that we might see who we are and who we belong to. In the massive cataclysm, which is about to take place, there is an intimacy that Christ desires that his church, that his bride would know. A lot of stuff is going to happen. He is saying there's something you need to know. There's a message that you need to understand. You belong to me. And I will care for you. And in this chapter, I think what we see is, I will care for you on earth and I will care for you in heaven. It's not just heaven, and it's not just earth. It's heaven and earth. You belong to me. And as I was writing this, it was so heavy, I couldn't help but think of one of my favorite characters in all of fiction. I don't know if any of you have read The Little Prince, um, Antoine uh, de Saint-Exupéry's Little Prince. It's a short little book. And in that short little book, there's a little rose a petulant little rose. And I have to say, she's one of my favorites in all the, all the people that I read of. She, she is so seeking to be significant. Asteroid B612, by the way, is this little planet. I think it's got like three volcanoes on it. It's, it's like, you know, the size, you know, like it's one-tenth the size of this room. It's a very small planet. You can walk around it in a few minutes. And, and she's trying to convince the little prince of how significant she is. 
and how she's the only rose in all the universe. And that he's lucky to know her. Like it's a privilege for him to know her. And you just read, you're reading the way she's trying to present herself in an effort to go, I matter. And you, little prince, you need to recognize, I matter. Well, what happens in that story, you know, spoiler alert, of course it was written in like the 40s, but is he starts traveling the universe and realizes there are millions of roses. You're not, you're not one of a kind at all. He kind of discovers that she had lied to him about how exclusive and how special and how significant. And he's a little bit put off until he meets this fox. And the fox begins to explain to the prince, no, 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 no. It is not a matter of deceit on her, her part because, because she belongs to you. you. You have tamed her. You belong to her. You love her, she loves you, and therefore she is, in fact, exclusive. She is the only rose in the universe. And it's almost like, you know, this, he has this epiphany in terms of how unique and special this little rose is. I couldn't help but think of that when I begin to think of the message conveyed in this chapter in terms of how unique and special each one of us are in the mind of God, in the heart of God. The horrifying destruction revolving around the raising of the temple would have no significant effect upon those who followed the counsel of Christ. He had given them explicit instructions on how to avoid what was about to happen by the Roman armies. And those people, while they were seeking to heed that judgment, and I would say this is the way this works, you have those four angels holding back the judgment while those people who heard the counsel of Christ were leaving Judea. That's what's taking place here. There is this this recognition that God has given us his special attention. You know, in Psalm 139, it's written by one guy. It's written by David. And yet in Psalm 139, we see the most glorious description of the intimacy, he starts off, Lord, you have, you have searched me and you know me. I mean, David is writing that about God's disposition toward him as an individual. You, you know my path. You, you scrutinize it. When I go to bed, you're there. When I wake up, you're there. When I, if, I, if I took the wings of the dawn, if I dwelt in the most remotest part of the sea, behold, you are there. And so there's this intimacy in terms of God's care for us. Lest we think that in this kind of massive destruction that's about to take place, we are merely a drop of water in a bucket. That's, that's, that somehow... Our individuality has been lost, and such is not the case. So these angels, get the idea of what's going on here. So there's going to be a great cataclysm, a great siege, and you've got these four angels holding back the the floodgates of destruction, and the, uh, the other angel kind of going, hold on there, hold off, until everybody is sealed. Everybody that God wants sealed is going to be sealed before, those, that, before that judgment comes. And then, 
we find one of the most curious, curious designations in all of Scripture until the 144,000 are sealed. Now, who are they? All right, now, the speculations revolving around the 144,000 sealed saints in Revelation chapter 7 range, I'll put it this way, I want to sound charitable, but they range from what I'll say likely to reasonable, but maybe not likely, too far-fetched. For example, some say they, these are Mormon high priests. Others would say that these are a certain group of unique Jehovah's Witnesses. Others offer that these 144,000 are post-rapture Jewish evangelists who can be likened to 144,000 Jewish Billy Grahams during the post-rapture seven-year tribulation. I think Ray Steadman made the comment, these are Christ's commandos. These, are, these guys are the, you've got to watch out for them. They're really going to make it happen, that kind of thing. Now, I can't tell you how much information I've left on the cutting room floor of this sermon. So if you want to ask questions during Q&A, feel free, because time doesn't allow a full treatment of all these views. And some of you, this may not be interesting until you start talking to somebody about it, and then you're going to be like, oh, where are those notes? I got to. But let me tell you something that's important in terms of just the way we read our Bibles. We need to avoid taking what really amounts to be a difficult prophetic passage of Scripture and allowing it to entirely reframe our basic understanding of how God operates in redemptive history. We don't want to take something that is kind of hard to understand and then have that dictate other things that are easy to understand. You want to have the things that are easy to understand help you understand the things that are difficult to understand. You know, there's a term for that that theologians use. It's called the analogy of faith, where you're kind of just going, look at I'm, I've, I've got to approach this with the things that I know. Let me tell you, There's nothing in this passage or anywhere in the Bible that would somehow suggest these are Mormon elders or high priests. There's nothing anywhere in the Bible that would suggest that these are a unique group of Jehovah's Witnesses. And I would also say there's nothing in the context or in the Bible that suggests that these are post-rapture super saints. I I don't think you can find that. I think you're imposing that. You're taking this and you're reinterpreting that which is clear by that which is less clear. Also, and this is kind of, I think, a big deal. We should avoid seeking to overturn the laborious efforts within the New Testament, the New Covenant, to establish unity between the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christian. If you read your New Testament, you, you will come to the conclusion that that was a big deal that the Apostle Paul is continually trying to resolve. That the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians were simply not getting along. And when you read, you know, Ephesians chapter 2, it's as if Paul goes overboard to go, look at There was a wall of separation separating the Gentile from the Jew. That wall is gone. 
And these Gentiles, they were strangers of the covenants. They were not part of the commonwealth. By the way, that, that word commonwealth, politeia, is where we get our word politics. So it's, it's not just a covenantal, it's a very political designation. And he's kind of going, look at, in every conceivable way that there's a natural divide between the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christian, Paul's going, you need to get rid of that. He goes so far as to say that the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christian, which means all Christians, by the way, are one new man. So any, any way you're reading your Bibles that somehow draw the conclusion that within the body of Christ, there are unique and special people based upon who they're related to in terms of like the bloodline is antithetical to what the Bible laboriously seeks to tell us. I mean, he goes so far in Galatians as to say that if you, are not, if you do not have faith, you are not a child of Abraham. I mean, he, he, he's just pressing the issue. Matter of fact, he goes so far as to say, you know, you're, you're actually children of, of, of the slave, of, of Ishmael. I mean, and those would have been fighting words at the time for the Jews. But he's kind of going, look at, no, 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 in the new covenant, we are one new man. And I bring that up because there are a lot of people who are kind of going, well, no, no, these 144,000 are uniquely Jewish Christians. So now you have to draw the conclusion that everything you've been reading up to in the first, you know, 26 books of the New Testament has to be overturned when you get to chapter 7 of the Revelation. Keep in mind this also, that the apostasy of Israel at the time, of the Jew at the time, in Revelation 2.9 and in Revelation 3.9, had descended so far that Jesus says they say they are Jews, but they're not. So now, even within the context of the Revelation, he's kind of going, no, they are not. Matter of fact, he calls them a synagogue of Satan. They had become so dark at that time. Now, keep in mind this, you know, primarily the Christians at the time were also Jews who had become Christians. And so it's not kind of some anti-Semitic thing. It's just a recognition that that favor with God is found by the blood of Christ. And to be outside of that, or in this case, to be against it, does not place you in this position where you're any longer the apple of God's eye. The natural question, then, if, um, if these are not like Jewish Christians or Jews or what have you, the natural question, I guess, would be, why list the 12 tribes? Right? That's the natural question. Well, one not-so-obvious answer is that he doesn't. I mean, we're looking at this, but I think you need to, as you read this, recognize that it is of great significance that these 12 tribes in Revelation chapter 7 are never in the Bible listed the way they're listed there. Who, what tribe is listed first? Judah. Was he the firstborn? No, he was the fourthborn. The firstborn was Reuben. Now you might go, well, what's a big deal? Really big deal in the Jewish culture to somehow put Judah where Reuben is supposed to be. What was unique about Judah? 
We, we read that earlier, right? The, the lion of the tribe of Judah. So what we have here in the listing is the ascendance of the lineage of Christ. And not only that, if you go through the list, you'll see Dan isn't even on the list. Why is Dan left off the list? Well, because that tribe encouraged apostasy. We read in Genesis 49.10, even the, the prophetic statement that Dan is a viper. And we also see, you know, Levi, which not, was not a tribe of inheritance. We see Joseph, Ephraim's off the list. I mean, the list is completely different than the list we would normally see if we were looking at the listing of the 12 tribes. Keep this in mind also. James, writing to Christians in James 1.1, refers to them as the 12 tribes. So we have it there. As I said earlier, Paul refers to Christians and only Christians as the children of Abraham. Now, just so you understand, you know, you have Abraham and you have Isaac and you have Jacob and then you have the 12 sons and then you have the... So if you're not a child of Abraham, then you're not part of that lineage. And Paul's kind of going, if you're not, if you're not in the faith, you're not related to Abraham. I mean, time does not allow me to go into the detail, but right in the very beginning when John the Baptist is preaching and everybody's taking comfort in who they're related to, he says, don't even begin to tell me you have Abraham as your father. God could take these stones and turn them into sons of Abraham. I mean, on and on and on, and yet somehow we live in a culture where we've kind of built that, the wall up again, that dividing wall up between the Jewish Christian and the Gentile Christian, and it not be that way. I do think that it's safe to say, in light of the naming of these tribes, that the ethnic Jews were not excluded by virtue of being an ethnic Jew from the kingdom of God. We can't draw that conclusion either, because there was that danger. Remember, in Romans 9, the Apostle Paul is saying, if it wasn't for the seed, you, Israel, would have ended up like Sodom and Gomorrah. What happened to Sodom and Gomorrah? completely annihilated, right? So now the seed has come, who is Christ. So the natural question would be, if you were a Jew going, are we going to end up like Sodom and Gomorrah? Because the seed is here. And then Paul says, no, that's not going to happen. And then he actually points to himself as an example in Romans 11.1. 1. He goes, am I not a Jew? But he was a true Jew because he had, came, he had come to faith in Christ. So we have to kind of put all of this together and maybe that's one of the reasons why Revelation is so hard, because it, re- it requires so much back knowledge in terms of who's included in the covenant and what that looks like and these types of things. We need to recognize also this, I think, when we look at those 12 tribes listed. And that is that, as I said, it was through the Jews that God would preserve his seed and present the gospel, and it was through the, the Jews were, a, as Paul put it, a sort of root of the Christian faith. So he's still kind of designating, you know, it is through Israel that the Savior would be born. And so that's where it goes back to. But in the New Covenant, which I would say Revelation is primarily concerned with the establishing of the New Covenant and the end of the Old Covenant, 
The kingdom of God is no longer restricted to Israel, but extends to every tribe and tongue and people and nation. Now we are moving, and I would say this, I think maybe what is beautifully put here that we miss is that you see in this very chapter the transition from those 12 tribes in the first half of the chapter to the universal church in the second half of the chapter. You're seeing these things take place. So that was that which was initially restricted to Israel has become international and innumerable. Okay, now, it was about here when I was writing my sermon that I said to myself, it's becoming more like a seminary lecture. And so I wrote here, if you can stay with me just a moment longer. Sometimes it's like, it's a point where I want everybody to stand up and shake hands with your neighbor and get a sip of water or something. (laughs) But okay, just hang in here with me just a moment longer. What we have here are 12 tribes, though modified, multiplied by 12, right? 144,000. Now, keeping this in mind, that Revelation, if you were to study this, if you were to kind of sit down and if you had the time that I have to do this, you would realize it has a very 12 orientation. The New Jerusalem is 12,000 furlongs, having 12 gates named after the 12 tribes with a wall that is 12 times 12 with 12 pearls and 12 fruits and on and on. So you've got this 12 orientation in Revelation. So you have 12 tribes times 12, which is 144, times 1,000, which in the Bible almost always means that which is almost beyond measure. Like my God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. In other words, if I gave any of you an assignment to go count that, you would not be able to do that. You would not be able to pull it off. It's innumerable. Well, all this to say, okay, I brought you into the kitchen just because I feel a responsibility to do that. Now, We're back in the dining room, and here's the meal. All this to say that the great multitude, which no one could number, are the same people referenced in the 144,000, but from a different perspective. Now, keep this also in mind, and I've brought this up a number of times, and so it should sound familiar to you, and that is the pattern that we've already seen many times in Revelation, where John hears and then he turns and looks, right? This is something we see numerous times in Revelation. He hears, okay, who is this? The line of the tribe of Judah. And then he turns and he looks, and what does he see? Does he see a lion? No, he turns and sees a lamb. Are we to assume that the lion and the lamb are two different people? We, we all know that the lion and the lamb are both Christ. But it's a literary device to help us understand What's actually taking place? John hears 144,000, and then he turns and he looks, and what does he see? An innumerable number of people. Well, why then 
if that's the case, why the two perspectives? Why, why do this? Why not make it simpler? Well, I have a couple of answers, I think, to that question. And part of it had to do with what I found to be very comforting once I got through studying all of this, and that is God has his own numbered and minute detail. It may be innumerable to John, it may be innumerable to us, but it's not innumerable to God. And I think that's one reason that we have the two perspectives. In what appears to be an indiscernible mass of nameless people, we can be assured that He knows us. We can sing Psalm 139 the same way David sings Psalm 139. Second, as discussed last time, when we compared this to Ezekiel 9, remember in Ezekiel 9 when Israel was going to be sacked by Babylon and the God's own were sealed so that they would be protected from the historical judgments in time, in history, that would take place. There is God's oversight and protection from the predators of this world. So you have that perspective in the first half of the chapter. Second half of the chapter, we're in heaven, right? But the first half of the chapter, and some people divide it up, church militant, church victorious, you know, the church from God's perspective and the, the church from our perspective and so forth. But what we have to recognize is that when, as we studied last time, God is overseeing and protecting his people from the judgment that's about to fall upon Israel. As I said, Jesus instructed them, when you see the armies surrounding Judea, head for the mountains. It was the sealed ones who would hear that and obey that counsel. And for the most part, none of them were harmed by the fall of Jerusalem and the siege that took place. Now, to be sure, every person, every single person who heeded the counsel of Jesus and left Judea is today dead. We need to recognize that. Every person Jesus healed is dead. Every person he raised from the dead is dead again. And all those people, they died. But but they did not die as collateral damage of a judgment that God was going to invoke upon the, the, the Israelites with the destruction of the temple. They, God has determined the day we will die. He has determined the means by which we will die. He is in control of that. And he is telling them, I have put my seal upon you and this will not touch you. Let me tell you something. I think... Um, gets lost in the sensationalism again of Revelation. We're all worried about the, we'll get to this, the mark of the beast, and don't get that mark, and don't get that mark. The day, it's the end of the world, it's all coming, and again, you talk about things that are likely, unlikely, and ridiculous, and I mean, I have had friends who've moved, literally moved to the mountains. I have had friends who would not get the return to Disneyland stamp on their hand because they thought it might be the mark of the beast. And so all of this stuff taking place, and we're kind of like going, okay, as we get to the end of history, let's make sure we don't inadvertently take the mark, and we'll get to that. I think all of that is kind of misguided. But I will tell you this, that everybody's got a mark. It's not just for the end of history. You, you are either sealed in Adam, or you're sealed in the second Adam. 
You either belong to the world or you belong to Christ. That, we have, that, is out, that is throughout the course of history. This is not unique to one generation of people, as if there's, the last generation has this kind of special way that God is saving people and delivering people. You have to ask yourself, am I sealed or am I not? And if I'm not sealed in Christ, then you are still in the first Adam, which means that the second half of the chapter doesn't belong to you. The second half of the chapter belongs to those who are sealed on their foreheads, on their hands, on their heart. God has made them His. Well, it is with some apprehension that we're going to rush through these next verses. I mean, I have to say, it's almost like I almost feel irreverent how much we're going to cover so rapidly. It reminds me of a friend of mine who was an art, you know, an art lover, an expert in art, and took me to a museum. And I'm walking through the museum, and I don't know if I had a Slurpee, but I felt like I had a Slurpee. And I'm looking at this piece of art for about three seconds and, walk, and then walk on. And my art-loving friend <laughs> looked at me and just chastised me. Do you have any idea how long it took for that painting to be painted and what it meant? No, not really. I didn't. <laughs> but, I ha- but I have to say this. I can't help thinking that in the, in the midst of the soon coming severe events, the members of these seven churches, I'll bet you spent a bit of time enjoying the second half of this chapter. It's almost like you just want to sit there for a while. Those who were sealed on earth are now saved in heaven. I don't know if you've noticed this, how often now, you know, and it's been a goal of mine that as we go through the Revelation, that it not be sensational but ministerial how often we find ourselves swept into this place that is so unbelievably and unfathomably comforting. But it doesn't make, you know, the prophecy conferences because it just doesn't seem to be, you know, all that exciting. But it, if, I'll tell you, if you were one of those seven churches or if we were in another place, if we were in China, if we were in Korea, if we were in certain portions of Africa, India, and what's going on, North Africa, we might spend a bit more time in the second half of chapter 7. But for the sake of clarity, I just want to cover a few things here before we conclude. It's an innumerable multitude. Now, now we might just kind of blush by that, but I, I look at that and I say to myself, but wait a minute, didn't Jesus say many are called, but few are chosen? How does an innumerable multitude square with narrow is the gate and few are those who enter through it? Is the Bible contradicting itself? I've heard it, you know, and I, I don't want to discourage questions and answers. I, I love people to ask questions. It tells me a lot about what we all know and don't know. And if you have a question, that means other people have questions. So I don't, I'm not going to say what I'm about to say to discourage questions. 
But somebody, you know, years ago asked the question, you know, Pastor Paul, you seem to think because of your eschatology or post-millennialist that the, that the gospel is going to have this great effect upon the whole world. And yet, Jesus said, many are called, but few are chosen. And I'm like, okay, I, I understand what appears to be, at least initially, a conflict. But let me tell you this, when Jesus said that, he was speaking to his current audience in the current context and should not be considered a prediction of the effectiveness of the gospel throughout history. That was the case there. He's talking to them about what's going on there. The prophetic indicators of the success of the gospel, you know what, if you read the Old Testament, you know what you see? Like the stars, like grains of sand. See, when you actually look at what the Bible says will be the effects of the gospel, it is, in fact, innumerable. You can't count the stars, and you can't count, you can't count sand, and that is the effects of the gospel. The fact that at the time of Christ, people were rejecting wholesale doesn't mean that that's the way it's going to be for the course of history. This heavenly, international throng of worship I would say, you know, going back to the original readers and maybe people who are suffering worse than, than we're suffering, I think so diminishes the trials of this world that Paul says it's not even worthy to be compared. He's, you know, Paul will say, look at what we're going through right now. And it could be, you know, I don't think there's a limit to that. It could be persecution. It could be illness. It could be... You name it, economic difficulty, insecurity, depression, whatever it is you're going through. Paul is saying the difficulty of what you're going through is not worthy to be compared to the glory that will be revealed in us. And, and it's like paul been there. So, so what, what the Lord is trying to do to these, with these Christians is help them to get the eternal perspective so that the temporary historical perspective, won't overwhelm them. Because we tend to live as if we are overwhelmed. And I think he's trying to open their eyes to that. We see the white robes indicating the effectiveness of the cleansing blood of Christ who presents his bride to himself without spot, without wrinkle. We, uh, we see there... And again, we could stop at any one of these places. But we see there a provision and blessing unique to what Christ has done. We, you know, I, know, I realize you know, we, we're living in an increasingly, increasingly pluralistic society. And many, you know, and when I, you know, I'm trying to share my faith with my buddies, you know, down at the beach. We talk our, to our friends, you know, about some of, some of, some of us here are there amidst unbelievers. And some of them are quiet, but some of them, you know, they have their arguments. And one of the arguments is kind of like, well, there's so many religions, you know, and they, the, the religion is viewed kind of as a smorgasbord, right? And you pick this one and you pick that one. You pick the religions that you feel make sense to you and, and without realizing that you're just assigning godhood to yourself, 
the moment you establish your own religion. But let me tell you this, in the smorgasbord of religions that are out there, whether they are the world religions, or whether they're sects or cults within those religions, and on and on, none of them have on their counter being cleansed from your sins by the blood of Christ. None of them have an answer to the problem of human sin. Every last single one of them, all of them, are a works righteousness religion. John Gerstner made the comment, it's a big term, but I'll explain it. He was, he was R.C. Sproul's teacher. He said, other than the Christian faith, every religion, every religion in the world is autosoteriological. What he meant by that is, it's a religion where you save yourself. But they are, they are comforted because of the white robes given to them by the blood of Christ. I was just um, this week, watched this very short lecture by a Roman Catholic woman. I think she was, I guess, an apologist. I don't know what her role was, but she was talking about the blessing and hope of purgatory. And I couldn't help, get, I couldn't help listen. I mean, I'm, because, you know, I've done a bit of work on this. And the effort of my Roman Catholic friends, the ones who are really studying it, to turn purgatory into something enjoyable is astonishing. But she basically was arguing that, you know, we are, it's not like hell where there's no hope. You have hope, and you're climbing and climbing, and you're being purged and punished, and you get to the higher tiers and the higher tiers, and eventually you get there. Well, first of all, if in fact our sin is what the Bible says it is, if you're going to go to purgatory, you know how long you're going to be there? Forever. But also, in a passage like this, we see these saints sealed on earth and then immediately praising God in heaven. There's no intermediate state there. It's you move one right to the next. And why can they enjoy that? They can enjoy that because... Their garments have been cleansed and they are in the white robes given to them by the blood of Christ. And they have palm branches which indicate stability and, and victory. What we don't see in the, your English translations is when this praise is taking place uh, is the definite article. All right? in, the, in the passage, it says... Um, Blessing and glory and wisdom, thanksgiving and honor and power and might. That's what your versions will say. But actually, in the Greek, there's the definite article in front of every attribute. In other words, the praise sounds more like this. The blessing, the glory, the wisdom, the thanksgiving, the honor, the power, and the might. You might say, well, what's the big deal? Well, the definite article brings us to the place where we recognize that these things can only be said of God. God, who alone is wise. And any type of derivative of wisdom we have stems from the one and the only one who is, in fact, the wise one, and the truth, and the life, and the light, and so forth. Well, in light of all of this, there's little wonder that Paul, who we read in 2 Corinthians 12, had some level, had witnessed this. When we get together on the Lord's Day and have worship, it's almost as if, and I realize we, we see through a mirror dimly and all this stuff, but it's, a, it's God's way of kind of going, you need, 
to meditate on and contemplate your eternal Sabbath rest. And Paul had seen this up close and personal. We, he, you know, he had seen you know, the, the third heaven. And I would say that's one of the reasons, if not the primary reason, that he was able to unhesitatingly make the comment, for me, to live is Christ and to die is gain. For us to live our lives in such a way as to recognize that. I remember when I was a youth pastor, I went to this conference and there was a guy giving a lecture and a young guy, had little kids, and he'd said something that at first blush I thought, this is really uncomfortable for me to hear you say that. But I have to say, it's something that has stayed with me all these years. And he made this comment about raising his children. He said, the very first thing I want to do for my children is teach them how to die. And we all kind of looked at each other because that sounds kind of weird, right? But what he, what he then said was that it is because it is not until they learn how to die that they're really going to know how to live. We need to recognize this. Our eyes need to be opened to our eternal glory, our eternal hope. Otherwise, we have no idea how to live this life. And I think that's what John is trying to bring his readers to. You're about to go through some tough times here. You need to see the eternal hope of the glory that belongs to you. Now, let me finish up here, because verse 15 in the New King James Version isn't translated very well. So in the notes, I put in the ESV, which I think is a better translation. Therefore, they are before the throne and serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them. That word literally, and that's my parentheses, literally means will tent among them with his presence. This idea that he's tenting us. He's our tent. Here's something we need to understand. The physical temple is about to be destroyed because a couple reasons. That physical temple, it had served its purpose. It was designed to lead people to the true Christ because it is Christ in the resurrection that is actually the temple, right? Tear it down in three days, I will rebuild it. And it also had become a distraction. The temple had become a distraction. Let me tell you, I think the same thing can be said of any religious pursuit or activity. It can become a distraction. Our praises, the sacraments, our readings, our offerings my sermon, our very gathering can be a distraction if it is not heralding Christ. If the sacraments become their own thing, well, that's why people were dying at Corinth. Sacrament just kind of became its own thing. It became a party. I mean, we, God has us an express purpose for those things that he's established to honor the Son. The temple was one of those things. It pointed to Christ, but then it became a distraction to Christ, and then it was going to be destroyed. These saints, all saints, 
need to know, and I hope you know this, that your, your shelter is not a temple. Your, your shelter is not a church building. I enjoy our building. I enjoy being in here with you guys, and you guys seem to like each other and so forth. And I think that's great. But that is not your shelter. It is not even some fortified city where we gather. I mean, don't get me wrong. There might come a time when cities need to fortify. But that is not your eternal shelter. It is not a fortified city. It is the city of God. It is the city that which is to come that is our shelter. It is in that city, the city of the living God, Hebrews 12, 22, that we find our true and eternal refuge. And I pray to God that you have found that. Otherwise, this whole thing just becomes meaningless. It is there, by the way, that we will appreciate that our true refuge is Christ himself because it is Christ who is our shelter. You might go, well, Pastor Paul, shelter from what? Well, shelter from sin, shelter from its curse and its inevitable and eternal death. I find myself, I have to say, comforted by the fact that the Bible, using language that we can apprehend can never, ever fully capture the glory and the majesty of heaven. I I like that. I I, I like the fact that John is using the best language available to him for us to know the glory of heaven. I mean, you know, things like we'll get to streets of gold and, you know, but this passage right here, which is a, a an allusion to what we read at the call to worship from Isaiah. So it's not anything new. He puts it this way, John 7, 16 and 17. They shall neither hunger anymore nor thirst anymore. The sun shall not strike them nor any heat. For the Lamb who is in the midst of the throne will shepherd them and lead them to living fountains of waters and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. We're talking about paradise, eternal paradise, eternal joy, eternal peace forever. As uh, Dan said you know, earlier, this is where we need to fix our eyes. We are to fix our eyes upon Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And I have found it's usually something we only do in the midst of a struggle. You know, we're in, and then we get in the struggle, you know, we're trying to figure out how to use the lifeboats while the ship is sinking. But we are to, that's why he's saying every week you've got to come, at, be, at least weekly come, and you hear of this eternal hope. I recall uh, a number of years ago, I was anticipating a, a number of weeks, it might have even been months, when I was looking at my schedule and realized that I was going to be busy morning and evening 24-7. I remember thinking, and my wife kind of going, wow, you got a rough couple of months coming ahead. And I was looking at my calendar, and the whole thing ended with me doing a wedding. And you might go, oh, great, you get to end with a wedding. Okay, look it. I love weddings, but they are tiring as well. 
just so you know, <laughs> you know, because nobody could ruin somebody's most biggest day of their life like me, <laughs> right? It's the biggest day of your life, and I could totally wreck it, right? So there's a little bit of an exhaustion there. A little, it was a little tiring. But then I thought this. I mean, this is a very mundane example, but I've got a bigger point I want to finish with. Then I realized that after the wedding, there was going to be a reception. And I was going to sit down with my wife, my bride, and we were going to have a glass of wine together. And, I, and for months, I was thinking about that moment. Right? And I have to say, that happened, and it lived up to its expectations. But what we have to realize is, all of that pales in comparison to the anticipation of the full consummation of the marriage supper of the Lamb. Like for us to live this life going, there's another feast that I will be sitting at. There's another table. And it's the full consummation of me recognizing who I am in Christ, who shelters me from all that is dark and evil and painful forever. And I think John wanted his readers to keep their hearts and minds there, and I would pray that we would do the same. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we do pray that we would recognize that even in the midst of turmoil and strife and times when we feel isolated and alone and unthought of, that you, Father, know us personally, individually. You weaved us together in our mother's womb You ordained every single day of our lives when there was yet not one. And there's not a thought we have, there's not a place we can go that you are not there as our loving, caring Father. We do pray, Father, that such knowledge, knowledge that is said to be too wonderful, that we can't even attain to it, would be a knowledge that we would nonetheless pursue as we ever contemplate the glory of the victory that is found in the shelter who is Christ in whose name we pray, amen.